Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome to the Secret Resume Podcast, hosted by me, Melody Moore. In this podcast, we explore the people, places, and experiences that have shaped my guests, those which have influenced who they are as people and where they are in their work life today. You can listen in as we have a rich exploration of often unexamined and undiscussed but very important aspects of their lives, or as I like to call it, their secret resume. My guest today is Nadia Nagamutu. Nadia, thank you so much for joining me. Really happy to have you here. Um, And before we dive into your secret resume, can you just tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do for a living? Absolutely. Um, So yes, I'm a, my background is as a chartered psychologist. Um, and I specialise in the area of business psychology. So I spent a number of years, um, about 20, in fact, uh, in all sorts of organisations, both internally. Uh, so I worked in local government for a while, as well as externally in consultancy, uh, designing leadership development programmes, facilitating um, and, and specialising, I suppose, in culture change transformation uh, as well as diversity, equity, and inclusion, of course. So my business is Avenir, and at Avenir, we work globally um, with organisations to help them with creating a more inclusive culture. And that can be anything from supporting them with their diversity, equity, and inclusion strategy. So, for example, we have an inclusion survey tool where we can really measure and understand how different people are experiencing the organisation. Um, And that can be a really helpful benchmark for organisations to understand where to focus their time, energy, money, Um, and in particular, specialising in leadership development, so inclusive leadership. And we have a a programme that we work with organisations to support leaders in understanding this very knotty, complex subject of what it looks like and what it means to them and to the organisation. so yeah, I'm a, I'm a accredited coach as well, and I've got an executive MBA from Henley Business School. Um, I I live in South London. I have two daughters and a husband, um, and uh, yeah, I absolutely love what I do. Brilliant! I always you can always tell when people love what they do because they can <laughs> see it shines out of them when they talk about their job. So let's um, go right back to the actually. So even pre you, I think the beginning of your story, you would, um, but you were um, going to talk a bit about your mum and her experience of moving here to the UK. Um, so do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So, so for those who don't know me, um, I am Mauritian from a heritage perspective. So both my parents were born and brought up in Mauritius. And, um, you know, they were, you know, from a a low income family, really, both of them. Uh, My mom in particular, her dad was a carpenter um, and uh, she was one of five. And so from a financial perspective, they didn't have a lot. I mean, she tells me stories of, you know, her going to school and being literally sat down in a classroom of about 60 children on the floor sharing books. You know, they were, they had like one between three of them or something reading these books. Um, So there, you know, it was, it is an incredible upbringing. If you think about sort of the difference 
between her upbringing and mine, just one, just the next generation. Yeah, I was born and brought up and my brother in, in England. Um, and so our education and our upbringing is, 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 it's almost hard for me sometimes to connect with her reality of her stories when she tells me about how she was, you know, how she grew up in Mauritius and some of the challenges, you know, um, they'd have you know sometimes they wouldn't have electricity sometimes they you know the things that they would eat for breakfast are things like rice and bread and you know it's very different to my own upbringing and I I really admire my mum um for I suppose just how she how brave the courage to leave a small island obviously Mm -hmm. Mauritius is a small island and um come over here she married dad um came over here didn't know anyone um, and had to find work, you know, had to, she, you know, her she was fluent in English. It was, it was not a problem in terms of her language, um, although obviously it was a second language, having said that. And, you know, at the time we're talking, you know, um, 70s, uh, early 70s, you know, people in England weren't overly welcoming of yeah. you know people of any sort of other background particularly people of color and um so there were a huge amount of microaggressions that she faced in the workplace uh, and dad too obviously you know he he experienced similar um but i remember my mum sharing with me you know some it was absolutely what we would know and class as bullying behavior um and microaggressions you know people making comments about her accent people making comments about how her lunch smelled you know because it was of course you know of an ethnic background and she would bring things in that people didn't recognize and and you know so she's constantly needing to fit in constantly needing to belong and I don't think I've really properly um spent time thinking about how, like walking in her shoes at mm. that time back in the early 70s it's hard for me because obviously I was born in the 80s mm. and I was born here but you know if I really take time to think about what she must have experienced um it would have been incredibly tough you know how do you build some friendships how do you um how do you get any legitimacy in your working environment when you it's quite clear that well, you don't belong in 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 so many different ways, but yet you're trying to fit in, you're trying to belong, and yet there's so many signals that are coming your way that suggest that you don't. Um, and what do you do with those messages? How does it undermine you, who you are, your confidence? Um, and uh, so, I mean, but, but yet she was so wanting for my brother and I to... It, to live in England and experience and, and feel like we belonged there here um, I should say and so she would do anything and everything to make sure that our our life our lives were set up for success she put in so much time and energy into tutoring me as as I remember and I I was you know quite a headstrong young girl some would argue that I'm still a headstrong <laughs> um, woman, but uh, yes, I was particularly headstrong, and I would push back and say, "Oh, I don't want to do that. Why do I have to do this? It's the weekend, you know." And she, I remember sitting down with her, working through um, additional 
sort of schoolwork, you know, textbooks, things that she, books that she bought to to make sure that my brother and I had the best chance of getting in getting an education. Knowing, I think, knowing that, and she never she never said to me, um, because we are different, you need to work harder. But that's mm-hmm. the message that I took. Mm-hmm. That's the message I took. Um, and there was a only about three miles down the road, there was an all girls grammar school. Uh, and actually, um, similarly, an all, all boys grammar school for my brother. And she worked with both of us. My, I've got my brother's older. So he went first to the all boys grammar. And I passed the 11 plus through her tutoring, through her hard work to get into this all girls grammar. And that for me, that for I think for her was parenting job number one done, you know, in terms of, I mean, there's lots of other parenting jobs, obviously it might not have been number one, but it was a big tick on her list for sure to get us both into a high quality education. So, and, and I think so important because of our minority um, background to for her to feel that actually she's given us the best chance in life and and so my drive everything that I do fundamentally is because she offered and my dad obviously um collectively offered me a platform to thrive to and I so I took that opportunity with Mm. both hands and I was like and I ran with it so yeah that's but that's my uh, one of my key drivers mm. um, in in life is mm. to um, make it worth it. If that makes sense, like all that effort and time, mm. and what my mum did to coming over from England, everything that she went through, kind of feel like it's my duty mm. to make the most to do something worthy. It, it yeah. with my life, yeah. So that I can say to her, it was worth it. Mm-hmm. You, thank you. <laughs> do you feel it is? Do you have that sense of satisfaction? I, you know what? In my forties now, early forties, have to say, um, it's so rewarding to look at what, and I rarely do it. I have to say, and people are always stopping me, going, Nadia. It's amazing what you're doing. It's amazing what you've done. And I don't, I don't, I very rarely would stop and pat myself on the back. But when someone like you has just asked me, I have to, with all honesty, say, yes, I'm so proud of, I suppose, every, all those little things that I've done, which have, which have accumulated over time, you know, so from my, undergraduate degree my postgraduate degree in occupational psychology my MBA you know which I won a scholarship for so it was a fully paid scholarship sponsored by the Financial Times and Henley Business School um and uh you know setting up Avenir uh, generating generating clients and income you know actually clients who keep coming back because they enjoy working with us they trust us all of that those I call them little things because I don't really stop and think, well, because it's to me, it's just normal. It's just what happens. I, I put in the hard work and, and you know, people want to work with us and, and it's wonderful. Um, 
but I don't stop to think like writing the book it's mm. I just did it you know I decided and, and I cracked on and did it but if I do stop and answer a question like that I'll be like yeah yeah I do hope that I've made every moment count and I've contributed to something mm. bigger which is which is my ultimate drive to contribute mm-hmm. to something bigger than me it's you know I'm a small tiny 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 cog in a big system mm-hmm. but I do believe that even the smallest of cogs can make a, a big difference with continual work and effort um, and that's what that's what I do uh, every day that's what that's why I wake up at you know in the morning sometimes at silly o'clock in the morning on a Saturday and Sunday before the kids wake up so that I can put in a few hours because I believe very strongly and passionately that creating a more inclusive workplace and inclusive society is it, it matters mm. and your parents are they still around what do they think of what you're doing <laughs> um yes they are yeah in fact that's where my two daughters are today um because it's school holidays um I, they you know I think they're proud I, I hope they're proud um they I suppose in a way sometimes don't quite understand what I do not fully but let's face it I don't you know even my husband doesn't fully know no. what I do and I quite <laughs> honestly don't really know what he does um all I see is two screens and and, and spreadsheets and numbers um he's an accountant so um do we do we really know what anyone else does apart from you know what we we do so uh i think that they i don't know whether they quite understand how the impact of their journey in life i've never told them specifically because of you and, and partly, but you know that this is, this has driven me to to do what I'm currently doing. Um, yeah, so maybe if they knew that, <laughs> they could understand a little bit more about about my drive. I think sometimes it's, it comes a bit sort of because I <laughs> my mum used to call me her little tornado when I was like in my sort of teenage early twenties. Like I I would li- and I and I haven't stopped, and that's the thing. Like so I. I know that I can be a little bit overwhelming to some who have a bit more take it easy nature about them and a bit more of a, you know, time is plentiful. And and I'm very much a, like a, oh, we don't have, you know, there's, there's so much to <laughs> no, do. No, it's not. <laughs> yeah, there's so much to do in such little time. Um, and I've got all these things I want to cram in. And and so hence I can, I can be a little bit sort of like, okay, Nadia's in the room, um, you know, let's get stuff done. Um, I I know it can be a pitfall and um, I suppose in my, again, in my 40s, I can appreciate how, and have learned to navigate that as well um, and, and <laughs> um, tone it down when I need to. Uh, but at the same time, what my parents see is just me working 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 Mm. working kids juggling like I drop off I'm at my desk and then I'm picking up and then I'm dropping to a club and then I'm back at my desk and then you know and in between I'm doing the shopping I'm you know cooking dinner and you know managing a house um uh, yeah 
I think they think that there's more than 24 hours in my day. <laughs> you probably wish that there were. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about then. So you um, you went to the, the girls grammar school. You said that was a predominantly white school. Yeah. Um, At the time, this, you yeah. know, we're talking uh, 1992 mm -hmm. when I when I was first started high school, and it was predominantly. It's absolutely. So I was I'm was just finished actually five year term as governor there at, at that same high oh, school because nice. I wanted to give back um and uh my goodness has the demographic changed um but 1992 I was one of three um ethnic minority girls it's an all-girls school so ethnic minority girls in a sea of white middle class um and yeah it was it was tough in a number of ways, um, constantly feeling like I had to try to fit in, um, maybe even not quite having a, a full voice in the room because of it, I would say. But definitely, I, I wasn't shy to put up my hand. I would, you know, contribute in class. Um, but there was there were certainly groups of girls where... I didn't really feel comfortable. They they had something, they had something in common that was definitely not something that I had in common with them. And I don't think I quite put, you know, I was obviously 12, 13, 14, wouldn't quite put my finger on it at the time, but I just knew I wasn't comfortable mm. and I didn't feel accepted necessarily. Mm. And I felt that a few times in my life. Um, but for sure, school is <laughs> yeah. a, a unique place, a unique time in your life where you can really, and it's a, it's a hard time because you're, you're, you're a teenager and you're uncomfortable in yourself anyway and you still don't really know who you are. Um, but yeah, that's a, I did my absolute best to fit in and I think I did it in a way that almost... Um, let go of my Mauritian heritage mm. I let go of my Mauritian heritage and I didn't know I'd done it so it was un completely unconscious but I I was so wanting to assimilate to this white environment that I just ignored and thought well if I just ignore the fact that I have brown skin then maybe that will help me to belong and bizarrely, and this is a very strange story I, as I say it out loud, but I didn't realise what I had done and how much I'd let go of my, I'm going to say brownness, and I just mean, you know, just me as a Mauritian mm -hmm. woman, um, until my early 30s. So I just did not associate with being an ethnic minority for about 15 to 20 years of my life. And it and I say that with a smile because it's all it is a bit strange. But I just didn't want to. I didn't want to because if I acknowledge my difference, that that then that means that you know people will see me differently, and I just wanted people to see me like everyone else. Um, of course, that isn't true. Of course, they would still see my difference, but that's. That was my logic. I just wanted to belong. And so I just didn't didn't want people to see. So I tried to act and be as white as possible. 
It's, I find it really interesting what you're saying because I've, you know, done um, and been involved with a lot of um, development programmes for underrepresented talent. And I hear people say this, you know, that right. they kind of reject the idea of having a programme uh, for ethnic minorities, for women, you know, whatever group that we're working with. And it's really interesting to hear what you're saying about why you rejected that. What happened in your early 30s then that made you realise that that's what you've done? Oh, there's a specific moment, actually. So I was working for a consultancy and there was a specific moment, maybe it was late 20s now thinking about it, but when the founder of the company came into the room where I was sitting and he was like, we're putting in a, a tender for some work and it's specifically for a, like a positive action ethnic minority program. Are you okay for me to refer to you as an ethnic minority consultant? And it really took me aback because I paused for a moment and it, it seems strange, but because I hadn't because I'd let go of that part of my identity, I actually had to process what he was saying and say, well, yes, because I am. But it felt so uncomfortable for me to acknowledge it. And I, it was that moment that I realised that I had completely let go of that part of my identity. Um, but I didn't do anything about it at that point. I was just like, oh, that's, that was interesting. Mm. Hmm. And then, then into my 30s, did I have further conversations as I started to get more into diversity, equity and inclusion, my mid 30s, very much so, um, which was kind of around the time when I was doing my executive MBAs, there was other conversations coming out. And it's only when I've entered really having these conversations around, around difference, around race and racism, uh, around terms like coconut yeah so you're brown on the outside white on the inside obviously a derogatory term I just not like mm -hmm. I don't refer to anyone like that or myself but but just as I've come across these terms yeah. and concepts um have I realized so it's been a gradual it wasn't like a a, a significant moment but it's just several conversations was like suddenly realized this is what I've been doing. This is what I've done. And um, what did that look like? You said you kind of, uh, you know, denied your ethnicity or denied it to yourself, it sounds mm. like. So what does that look like in practice? Well, how were you, you know, how did you start behaving differently? And how have you started, to ha or have you started behaving differently now that you're in a different headspace around it? Yeah. Um, it's probably subtle. It's probably subtle. Bearing in mind that I have practiced not being an ethnic minority for probably longer than I've practiced being, uh, you know, and, and acknowledging that part of my identity. But I absolutely acknowledge that part of my identity now. I very much welcome it. I'm very proud of it. Um, because it's my story. It's it's who I am. And obviously I started by sharing the story even before I was born. It started mm -hmm. then. It started, you know, before my mum. My, my story is um, the generations that came before me and all that they carry, you know, and and all the trauma 
that comes with being an ethnic minority person, even though I haven't personally experienced significant like trauma in the sense of how we might think of trauma. Um, but it's generational trauma mm-hmm. that I carry. And and so I I process it now. I've read I've done a lot more obviously reading as a diversity, action, inclusion practitioner, professional, of course I've done. So I, I have an understanding of how how my ethnicity influences and impacts how the world interacts with me and so it's constantly there now it's constant so I because I'm so attuned to that part of who I am um it's 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 a I'm, I'm much more aware of how it influences how people see me how they view me and how it yeah how it influences my interactions Mm. And what about with your daughters? Has that, does it influence, you know, in the same way that your mum, you know, was really focusing on education because she, you know, had that belief that you needed to because you needed to mm. prove yourselves. Has that kind of come down to your, the next generation then in <laughs> in your daughters? Yeah, well, I, I absolutely can't deny that I support my daughter's as much as possible in their education and I think it would be it would it would yeah it wouldn't it would it wouldn't make sense given what I know in terms of psychology that how I was brought up doesn't feed into how I bring up my children I think we we can acknowledge that that would be present um interestingly um so my my daughters are of mixed heritage so my husband is is a white male British um and so they they could without seeing mum and dad next to them they could look particularly tanned Mm -hmm. like so white and particularly Mm -hmm. tanned or um maybe even Mediterranean you know I think people if they without with the absence of my husband and I they could look at them and just not really be able to put their finger on the ethnic background of our two daughters um and and fascinating as well is that they so my so the youngest is only three only just turned three as well so I I don't really have that much of a conversation with her about this yet but the eldest Mm. is going to be 10 next month so I can and I do um and she doesn't see she just sees our family unit as completely normal like there's never been a question to her a question for her rather that you know how come mummy's got brown skin and daddy's got white skin and look at me and how I'm a bit different from some of the other white children in the class or how I'm a bit different from some of the ethnic minority like you know but when both parents are from an ethnic minority background so some of the brown or, or black children in her class she just it it's it's wonderful almost to see the world through a a, a nine year old eyes where she just sees everyone for who they are and whether she she it's not about their skin color whether she gets on with them or likes them or plays with them it's just whether she just simply whether she likes them or not you know just their personality um so i i've i'm aware 
I have conversations with her about race, age appropriate, obviously, race and, and, and ethnicity. Um, and I share a story in the book, actually, of a really challenging parenting moment uh, when she was about five, I think it was, she'd gone for a play date at a friend, a white family friend's house. And I picked her up and on, and on the way home, she says that, so the, the older brother had had a friend over as well. So it was her and the daughter and then two boys and they'd been playing in the garden. And she says, oh, mummy, we played a game called Black Man. And I was like, uh, okay, do you want to... What did this what did this game involve? And she said, "Well, we pretended that there was a black man hiding in the trees, and then we all had to um, each take it in turns to try and get as close to the tree as possible. And if the others shouted black man, we had to run away as fast as we could." And I was just as this moment of just shock, but also, oh my goodness! Like I need to now have a conversation with a five year old to explain why that game was absolutely inappropriate and that I don't want her to play it again. So we have had moments like that where where I have addressed things where it's been clear or moments where I look at on the TV or in a film and I say what what what's absence in this film what's you know what looks what's absent um what aren't you seeing you know so I try to look help her look at the world with a critical eye um what what who are the the bad characters in this book mm. you know how are they depicted um and it's not all about ethnicity and race it's obviously about gender it's about you know what you know representatively how what we're seeing in children's tv programs and books and it's got much much better yeah um but of course we're not just reading the most contemporary books we're reading some of the old classics too so I think it's really important to to have those conversations so so that she can recognize and, and understand her heritage and and how it's beautiful you know she's a beautiful mix of heritage and that she can be proud of that yeah um so we've started talking about your daughter we were planning to anyway so that was when you first set up uh your company yes that uh, around the time that you had her so yes yeah, so i i had her in uh january 2014 and i set up avenir in january 2015 and so had you gone back to work at that time or was this an, a, a sort of uh post maternity leave setting up the business how did that work yeah so i um so it's fascinating you asked this um there's a story here so i Five months after having her, um, I was looking for a new opportunity. I'd been uh, working in my current organisation, the local authority, for about four, four and a half years. And I was thinking, actually, I'd, I'd like a change. And um, a friend of mine saw this advert. It had come her way um, with two days left for until um, the applications closed to apply for a scholarship to do an executive MBA at Henley Business School. And um, I was breastfeeding still. I was sleep deprived. Um, but it just, she was like, you need to do this. This is you. Do it. Apply. Try. So my husband came home on a Friday night. The deadline was Sunday. And I said, I think I'm going to do something a bit silly. Um, 
but I'd like to try. And I had already it asked me to write an article about sort of what was the most limiting thing to female progression. And um, I already had the answer. I already kind of had thought about what the article, what my essay would say. So I just bashed it out over a 48 hour period, including the application form, getting references. It was a bit my husband took little one and then kept bringing her back to so I could feed her. And then I just put her back in his arms and he went off. Um, and yeah, and then the next week I, I found out I'd won the scholarship. Um, and so I started that in October 2014 when she was 10 months. Um, and I thought, gosh, you know what, maybe this isn't the right time to move companies as well. This is, this is a lot I've got, you know, a small baby. I was starting executive MBA. Um, let me just stay where I am. But when I went back to work, um, I found that my position that they'd given me was two grades lower than when I left. Wow. Now, legally, they could do it because over the years that I'd worked in this particular organisation, um, they promoted me, but never officially promoted me. So I'd always got these short term like contract, uh, you know, covering yeah. maternity, that sort yeah. of thing. So my contract said I was sort of four grades lower than when I'd left. Um, and so when when they brought me back two grades lower than when I'd left, they thought, well, it's still better than where you started. And I was like, yeah, but, you know, I wasn't happy. Um, and me being, as I've mentioned, quite a headstrong individual, as I was just like, I think I can do this by myself. So I spoke to my husband and I was like, I think I'm just going to quit my job and set up my own company. <laughs> and you know what? I have, yeah, I have to I say this to many people about my husband. Um, he is one of the most supportive people in my life. That I, you know, he is. And for every crazy moment where I've gone, I think I'm going to do this. He's gone, OK, what do you need? Um, and so that's that's how Avenir was born um one year after my baby and uh it's actually a third baby now for me as you can probably imagine the book is a fourth so, <laughs> <laughs> so. and what does Avenir mean so with my Mauritian heritage um which is sort of a speaking a, a sort a, a dialect of French um I have a, a real affinity for French I did French A level as well so in French Avenir means future mm -hmm. so it's it, for me it was I, I love the word anyway it kind of rolls off the tongue Avenir um, but it means future and for me it's such a positive hopeful word lovely yeah I have an my company has an Italian name um, which I have no uh, connection to Italy other than going there quite a lot but I just liked the word because it means freedom um, to be yeah. free, so similar kind of, yeah. just like the idea of it. Um, talk to me a little bit about some of the workshops. You said that some of the workshops that you have run as part of your uh, company have been, you know, some of have kind of put you on that uh, road to to writing your book, to having the thinking about why you would do it. Do you want to tell me a little mm. bit about about those? Yeah. I can, I can. So, I mean, I've facilitated workshops with leaders globally now, and there are some moments that have really made me pause and think, you know, because diversity, equity, and inclusion and being an inclusive leader is tough. 
It's not easy because there's almost competing arguments around leadership. So I'm told that I should treat everyone fairly and equally and the same. And I'm told differently from an inclusion perspective that I need to treat everyone based on their own individual needs um, in a different way. And that that's what fairness is. And so, uh, you know, one one particular individual in a workshop said, well, look, I don't really understand. I don't get what you're telling me to do because I, I, you know, at the end of the day, we're all human and I treat everyone exactly the same way with respect, with fairness. And that's what I'll continue doing. And it, it really made me so through those many, many conversations, I learned and through observation that there were different sticking points when it come came to inclusive leadership and why what was stopping people what was holding them back from being really willing to act in a way that was what what we are I suppose suggesting is inclusive and I don't say I have the completely the right answer mm-hmm. when it comes to this um I don't dictate what inclusion is or looks like however if we if we want people to really start doing the work internally about their own lived experiences, their own privilege, unearned advantages, where well, the lens that they see the world, that inclusion ultimately isn't just about how you are with other people and how inclusive you lead. It's about how you lead yourself and how, how willing you are to do the deeper work on yourself to understand your own lens, why you see something in a certain way and why someone else might see it differently. So how receptive are leaders to learn about themselves and about other people? And how does that drive a willingness to act in an inclusive way? And there were some, through conversations in workshops, I could really hear that people weren't willing, they weren't receptive to learning about themselves and about other people. They just thought, well, look, this is the way I lead. I know I've had good feedback. I know that I lead um, fairly, treat everyone with respect, and I don't see any other way that I need to be. And that is limiting to inclusion. That is limiting to inclusion because if you lead in a sense that, well, I know I'm right, there's no other way it could be without curiosity, without actually wanting to understand how your lens influences your leadership and therefore impacts different people in different ways, then we have a bit of an issue. Um, And so I was hearing it multiple times in different ways. Some people saying, well, I I kind of understand what you're saying, um, but I don't see it. I don't, I don't, visibly, it doesn't, I I haven't witnessed this as an issue. and so they're looking for answers when equity is and inequities are, are often intangible. And so that that led you to the concept for the book. How mm. did that is that how it kind of led into thinking I need to write about this? Yeah. So so we accumulated all of these conversations and just started thinking gosh you know so the the book is based on a two by two framework so a model 
Of course, you're a consultant. We love a two by two framework. A good old two by two. (laughs) Exactly. Um, And it's accessible and it's, it's clearly simplified in terms, you know, I don't ever, ever suggest that people fit into a box. However, it's a, I think um, my aim really was to provide a useful framework for people to reflect. Mm -hmm. And that's the purpose of it. Um, So, so I've created these four ways of being and a way of being isn't fixed in time. Sorry, it's not fixed as a person. It's about how you see the world and how that influences what you do, what you say, and ultimately how inclusive you lead. Um, And so there are some people who are less receptive to learning about themselves and others less willing to act. And that's because they are, they do believe the pendulum swung too far in the opposite direction. One of my uh, sort of workshop participants said, you know, I'm scared now for my three blue eyed white boys, you know, that they're not going to be, uh, accepted in the workplace that they're not going to have the opportunities that I hope they will you know so that fear um, and concern that uh, diversity equity, and inclusion is taking things to, a, to an, an extreme which will limit obviously people's willingness to do anything if they feel that way um, then there's there's people who are really open to doing the work doing being inclusive they're, they're very pro-inclusion but they're less receptive to learning. So they feel they're as inclusive as it gets already. Mm. So why do I need to put in more work or effort? I I do what I do, I treat everyone the same, treat everyone fairly, kind of like the person I was speaking about before. And that, again, limits them in terms of their ability to be inclusive if they feel like there's no more further work for them to do. Um, And then we have people who are really receptive to learning. They're curious. They want to understand but unless they see it and experience it themselves, they're not sure whether it actually exists. And so without data to prove how much extra should we give, I'm just going to use gender. So, you know, women or non-binary individuals compared to men in order to make it equitable, because we can't measure that stuff. Um, they really struggle. So they're less willing to act. Um, and and of course we have leaders who lead beyond discomfort which is the name of the book and Mm -hmm. and the space which really shows that willingness to learn to do the deeper inner deep inner psychological work to to have courage to say I I don't quite understand this but I'd like to learn more to say I got it wrong and now I understand better you know to to be able to say, I need you to help me here because even though I'm a leader, I don't have all the answers. Um, to be able to look at each individual country and know that a global strategy won't necessarily work there and, and to be able to navigate some of the political legal issues that might limit certain uh, people in organisations to be there who they are. All of that is uncomfortable. So how do we lead beyond discomfort to be receptive to learning about ourselves, learning about other people and being then willing to do something, to take action, to be an ally, to be an advocate, to make change? Mm. Do you have um, 
thoughts it may be in the book maybe not maybe you've got some thoughts on you know the the where people are more in the there is no issue here um you know perhaps more in the um i don't want to I don't think there's a need <laughs> what mm. what organize you know that's where organizations think i re think really struggle um do you have a thought of how you can approach those people or if you should even so it's a it's a good question because the, the challenge here is that unless they're willing to op be open to an alternative perspective and they don't get defensive or angry. You know, we need people to be able to receive, to, to be willing to learn in order for change to happen ultimately. Mm -hmm. um, so the purpose of the book is, it's not aimed, for example, at a DEI practitioner who's trying uh -huh. to influence change. It's it's for those leaders to, so the, the book is, is for the leader who feels sometimes, maybe not always, sometimes feels that actually this is really unfair now because people in the majority groups are, are being discriminated against. It might not be their complete stance every single time when it comes to DEI, but they might feel it sometimes. And so it, it the book, the way I've written it, helps people to see if that particular way of being resonates with them at times, where it might resonate, how it can evoke and, and activate emotions within them and encouraging them to reflect on why, where that comes from. Um, and at the end of each chapter, there's sort of questions, um, questions of discomfort. And so I leave people with, I suppose, whether they want to delve deeper into this to answers. Maybe some of the questions resonate with them that they feel could, if they answered it, it might help them better understand themselves. Um, I really think the ownership here isn't for anyone to try and change people, but for people to recognise that that we all need to do the inner work. Um, and and I hope it it I hope that it serves that purpose and that people do read it with that in mind this isn't about judging people about mm. what's right and wrong what's more inclusive what's not inclusive this is about really supporting people to understand how some of their belief systems their values might um might benefit from just continuous reflection and evaluation and it might be that you end up in the same place where you started but the sheer process of being asked a question and being invited to explore it, mm. I hope will will open up a more uh, certainly a receptiveness to learning, uh, and hopefully more willingness to act. Mm. Do you feel optimistic? You know, there's a lot of um, commentary around DEI being under threat. You know, being budgets being slashed, um, roles being mm -hmm. removed what's your how are you feeling about the world of de and i at the moment um it's i think that dei has is suffering from being an industry or a, a, a you know that's been 
that's grown so quickly and almost too quickly for it to be able to catch up with itself. And what I mean by that is that um, from 2020, COVID, Black Lives Matter, and everything that came with this huge surge and need to talk more about diversity, equity, inclusion came, um, it's almost like it hit everyone so hard you know in the, it's like probably in your face diversity equity, inclusion it, was, it, it is everywhere it's been it's spoken about everywhere um and people then get fatigued with that sort of thing not only do they get fatigued but they also the message gets delivered potentially in a way that isn't managed as well so we have so many people entering the space they you know pe- people who had a completely different background so i had a obviously an occupational psychology um you know business background already you know, specialising in leadership development and culture change and all of that. So I wasn't new to the area, mm-hmm. but we have had people completely new to the area. And I'm not, you know, some of them are fantastic, but not all of them are fantastic. And not all of them have been driving the same message and, and with as much care as it probably needed to. Mm-hmm. This, is a, this, is, this is not an easy topic. It's not an easy conversation to have with anyone it typically brings up a huge host of emotions. It can bring up defensiveness, anger, frustration. Um, And there needs to be someone who is adept and skilled at being able to navigate that. Um, And I think that that's probably where some of the the issues lies now. So in a way, it's sort of like a rebalancing itself. Mm. You know, it it probably grew too quickly initially, and now we're sort of just getting to a balance. So, so I think the good DEI practitioners, those who are really making substantial change that's measurable and very clear and creating these more inclusive workplaces and societies, I think that that's clear and that work will continue. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. I think what I see happening is that, you know, particularly you were talking about people uh, feeling fearful. And I I see a lot of almost trying to make people fearful and no one's going to operate in a different way from a place of fear and um, Mm. being judged. Um, And there's too much of that, I think, of of, uh, uh, and not enough of, of of dialogue really realistically yeah um thank you so much that's i really loved uh hearing so much about your i'm absolutely desperate to read it now it's going to be that's out in march do you have a date uh in march that uh, is the yeah it's the 26th of march 26th of march okay fantastic um Speaking of books, it's available to pre-order. Order, oh, obviously, order. On it's Amazon. available now. Is it to pre-order? Yes, it is available. Yes, exactly. Fabulous. <laughs> so we will include a link in the show notes to. So you. Thank you. Um, what would be another book that you would recommend to the listeners? What's one of your favourites? Well, I have to say, I have read so many powerful books on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um because obviously it's, it's a topic close mm. to my heart, but also because um, in my podcast this season, Why Care, I have interviewed 
um, as guests, people who have written books in the DEI space. So um, some of my favourites are um, Amber Cabral's book, uh, which is called Say More About That, um, as well as uh, Jenny Vasquez Newsom's book, which is called Untapped Leadership. Brilliant, thank you. I will include links to both of those as well in the notes. Um, and what would be some advice to your younger self? It doesn't have to be you as a child. It could be, could be three weeks ago younger. Um, it's just a, an older, a previous version of yourself. What advice would you give? So if I could, if I could talk to myself back at school, it would be to let go of the the that that deep need to fit in and belong because and to be myself um because actually if i had just been myself um back at school there was absolutely a group of individuals who i connected with that i could show that to and who I felt accepted by. Um, and yeah, that that's, it's, it's so much easier said than done, of course. But um, just to give a, that word of encouragement that I will find myself, that I will feel confident in who I am. And uh, if I could have got that sooner, that would have been amazing. But obviously it wouldn't make me the person I am today if mm -hmm. I hadn't had that experience. So. Yeah. Yeah, there's that whole sliding doors <laughs> thing. If you change yeah. something in the past, exactly, you would be where you are. Um, great. Thank you so much for uh, coming on the, the Secret Resume podcast. It's been really fascinating to hear your story and to hear about what inspired your book. And it sounds like a really great and practical read for leaders who are maybe a bit more reflective and, and willing and wanting to to develop themselves so I think it's going to be fabulous thank you very much well thank you very much for having me you're welcome this podcast is brought to you by Liberare Consulting with editing provided by Hawkins Social if you enjoyed today's episode why not click on the subscribe button so you are the first to hear about new episodes. We look forward to welcoming you back soon.